Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360. And with the justices still on recess until late February, it's a pretty slow news week around here. So I'm going to be flying solo this week without my usual co-pilot, Natalie Rodriguez. And, you know, it's very easy to get swept up in the churn of the Supreme Court's docket each week, talking about all the different cases and the legal issues they involve. So sometimes it's good in moments like these to take a bit of a step back and look at the institution from a longer, more historical lens. That's why today I'm going to be speaking with a special guest about one of the most interesting justices in the Supreme Court's history, and that is Justice John Marshall Harlan. Now, Harlan's remembered for being the lone dissenting voice as the Supreme Court rolled back on the civil rights of black Americans during Reconstruction. A recent book about Justice Harlan looks at the jurist's compelling life story and why he was overlooked by the scholars and judges, even as his views were vindicated by later generations. My guest today is the author of that book, Peter Canellos. Peter is the managing editor for Enterprise at Politico. He was formerly the editorial page editor of the Boston Globe, a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and Columbia Law School. Peter's new book is The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's judicial hero. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Great to be here. Yeah, so first of all, congratulations on the book. I, I really enjoyed it. It is a kind of a terrific blend of you know the popular history of uh, Justice uh, John Marshall Harlan's time on the court in his early life in the 19th century, but also mixing in you know a lot of the really fascinating legal intricacies of the cases that he was uh, discussing and deliberating over. So I guess I just asked to start off, what inspired you to write about Justice John Marshall Harlan? Actually, I wanted to write about him for a long time because like a lot of Harlan admirers, I I had kind of an organic experience of him. When I was in law school at Columbia, I took a civil rights uh, and social change class, and uh, the civil rights case book was one of the few that included uh, dissenting opinions. And between that and in your regular constitutional class, coming across some other things like his dissent in the Lochner case and uh, his some of his uh, his defense on trust and other areas like that, uh, you came to recognize his voice. Uh, and here we were, in my case, in the very late 1980s, and he was somebody who at the time was writing 100 years earlier. And he was writing in in the exact same vein as almost all jurisprudence at that time and and today, uh, and all of his colleagues, uh, all of the majority opinions felt you know disastrously dated and off. So the question becomes, how did this one guy get it right? You know, and what is it that made him different? You know, if, if here we are studying the law, trying hard to figure out what are the you know evergreen principles. You know, how do you balance? Uh, being true to the Constitution without being so conservative that you're neglecting any sense of social change and development. Harlan obviously understood that, and he pretty much uniquely understood that in his era. So I've been fascinated with him for a very, very long time. And then in 2005, uh, I came across a legal encyclopedia and read a short entry on him, and there was just one line in it. It said, uh, he was believed to be the half-brother of Robert Harlan, who was the leading Black politician in Ohio during that era. 
And of course, that made me feel like this, there's probably a fascinating backstory to his life that helps to answer that question of how he was right when all his colleagues were wrong on what we consider to be the state of the law right now. And it is a really fascinating backstory because it's almost full of these contradictions, right? Being born into this prominent slaveholding family in Kentucky um, in a time where there was, you know, obviously uh, a lot of reckoning over the institution of slavery, ultimately, that would split the nation in a civil war. But, you know, what can you tell us about those early years, his formative years, and how, you know, uh, someone from this type of background could have gone on to become the leading voice in, you know, white America, at least, for the civil rights of African Americans and freed slaves? I I think that it's it's because of those contradictions. You know, he um, was born in Kentucky in 1833, and um, he was in this ultra patriotic family. Uh, his father was a very prominent man, and at various points was a congressman and was uh, attorney general of Kentucky. And he was a deep uh, admirer. Both the father and the son were deep admirers of Henry Clay, as many Kentuckians were during that era, including Abraham Lincoln. And so here you had this person, uh, this, this young boy, really, who was growing up uh, to being, being trained to sort of revere the Constitution and revere the founding principles of the United States and to believe that the United States was the, the great hope of mankind at a time when every other country was run by some form of monarchy or despotism. But then also to realize in a very intense way, as only Kentuckians would, this sort of looming fear of civil war, uh, which they believed would destroy their state. You know, their state would be the battleground. It would destroy its civic fabric, but also physically be destroyed. So Henry Clay and James Harlan, John, John Marshall Harlan's father, you know, they were at the forefront of all these attempts to create compromises that would forestall the war, whether it was colonization or whether it was compensating slave owners or whatever it was that would sort of postpone the reckoning uh, on the slavery question, they were in favor of. And uh, I think that they also believed strongly that if there was going to be a solution, it would have to come from the law. You know, these were men of law. John Marshall Harlan was named after the great chief justice who asserted the power of law over politics. And then, you know, in 1857, you get the Dred Scott decision. And instead of solving the problem, it it accelerates the problem and in, in Harlan's mind contributes strongly to, to the coming of this war that they had all dreaded. And so I think it gave John Marshall Harlan a sense of several uh, important things. One is the dreadful finality of Supreme Court decisions and how seriously the country can suffer when the Supreme Court gets it wrong. And I think that gave him some of the courage to be a dissenter, even when he wasn't by personality or character, a natural dissenter. You know, he was somebody who was in the mainstream of society. He had a happy marriage and six loyal children and he loved his colleagues and he was active in the bar and all that kind of stuff. So he didn't fit the profile of the sort of principled outsider. But he felt that, you know, he had to stand up for what he believed because the stakes were so high because he had fought in this war and seen this terrible uh, thing come. He also followed the same progression that to a limited extent Henry Clay did, but to a much greater extent uh, Abraham Lincoln did, also Kentuckians in coming to believe that their faith in the founding principles of the country was solid, but 
the compromise over slavery at the time of the Constitution being ratified was was a terrible concession. It was, you know, that slavery and inequality was the thing that violated those founding principles and almost destroyed the country. So he became sort of the the father and the chief enforcer of equal protection because he really believed that we could have another civil war. So when you have a situation like the insular cases in the first decade of the 20th century, he really feared that by keeping places like the Philippines and Cuba and Puerto Rico and you know future American protectorates under uh, a set of very limited rights and very limited laws and you know having these different racial populations treated as second class citizens that you were replicating the the situation with the civil war you know so he he took it deeply to heart precisely because it was part of his his background and because of those contradictions and I think one more thing you can throw into the mix is all those efforts to sort of forestall the crisis through compromise. I think it it taught him the limits of compromise, and he kind of felt like it was it's very important to get it right the first time. You you know you can't undo the damage. You can't put the genie back in the bottle on some of these legal and political issues if you if you march strongly down the wrong path, precisely because there there are then so many. Uh, economic interests and societal and cultural interests that are that are associated with them that, that you can't unravel it. I think he was uh, a principled opponent to slavery even as a young man, but he realized sort of pragmatically that you could not unravel slavery without causing uh, a war. And as a young man, he chose it was better to perpetuate slavery than to have a war. And I think he felt that that terrible, painful contradiction marked him negatively for his life, and, and he certainly didn't want to replicate it. And he had this interesting personal perspective, at least, on the issue of civil rights for African Americans, referring back to you know what you just mentioned a few minutes ago, um, his reputed half-brother, Robert. Can you tell me about Robert and what the relationship was between the two and how that perhaps could have influenced his perspective in some of these cases that he would later go on to dissent on in a way that you know his northern yankee colleagues on the supreme court didn't even fully appreciate robert harlan was a man of mixed race who was uh, enslaved as a child in the harlan uh, home and was believed by neighbors and other people to have been um this the son of james harlan from a very youthful like a teenaged uh, assignation with an enslaved woman in Virginia, where uh, James Harlan's mother was from. And um, it may also have been, there are many other theories now, that that James Harlan took a special interest in Robert, not because he was his own son, but he thought he was his father's son. That's also a possibility too in there. But Robert Harlan was raised almost as a member of the family, though he was technically enslaved. But he was denied education. Uh, the Harlans wanted to educate him, but he was rejected from school because of his race. And so he developed these sort of unusual entrepreneurial skills that to sort of compensate for that by finding places where black people could succeed in society. So he became a real pioneer in horse racing in Kentucky, even while a young enslaved man. He then um, went to the gold rush in 1848, 1849, and um, uh, was part of the first wave of, of of people, you know, heading heading to California, believing they could make a fortune. And he indeed came back with a fortune. 
it's believed that some of it was as a businessman, as uh, selling raw goods in a time of tremendous inflation in California, uh, as much as prospecting. But he may also have prospected and made money. But he came back with a chest full of gold, uh, the equivalent of about five or six million dollars today, which made him a hugely wealthy man in that time. He moved to Cincinnati, invested in black owned businesses, became even richer went to London to stage horse races, uh, transatlantic horse races, and try, sort of a showman in many ways, and became very much a citizen of the world, then returned to Cincinnati, and for 30 years was the leading Black politician in Cincinnati and a, a pioneer in the national African-American uh, political world. And um, during that time, he maintained close relations with the Harlan family. I shouldn't say close is probably a, a bit of an exaggeration. He maintained regular relations and intimate, to some degree, relations with the Harlan family. So, for example, John had a younger brother uh, who um, was uh, an alcoholic. Actually, he may have been a year or two older, slightly older brother, who became a terrible alcoholic later in life and had a lot of troubles. And Robert Harlan would support him with money and, uh, and papers. Uh, John Harlan's sister, when she got married, there was talk of how the the best and the most expensive wedding gift was from Robert Harlan. And Har Robert Harlan collaborated with John Harlan when he was in politics. Uh, the two of them both played a role in supporting uh, first Ben Bristow and then Rutherford B. Hayes for president in 1876. So there was a relationship of trust uh, between them. And when John Harlan was nominated to the Supreme Court, Robert Harlan helped to reassure people in Washington that John Harlan was actually a supporter of, of civil rights because it, at the time of his confirmation, he was held in uh, great doubt by uh, so-called radical Republicans who thought he was, a, he was a compromiser. You know, he was a Southerner who'd been uh, slow to uh, embrace uh, the very principles that he would later uh, become most famous for upholding. Uh, but Robert Harlan played a role in reassuring people. So you say, well, what does this really mean to John Harlan's jurisprudence? It means that in addition to all those factors that we talked about before, you know, Dred Scott and uh, the fear of, of compromise and the belief that uh, slavery had been a terrible violation of founding principles, he also understood that when people who had been born enslaved, when their rights were protected, some of them could really soar. I mean, Robert Harlan was wealthier and more famous than any other member of the family. He was a, a huge success story. So what happened in those post-war years is these Northern justices, many of them corporate attorneys, many of whom have bought their way out of the Civil War, you know, they had pristine civil rights records in the sense of having been abolitionists uh, earlier in their lives. But they never knew black people. They never understood anything about black people. So when all these theories of white supremacy took hold or the belief that uh, formerly enslaved people had been held back and in this childlike state and things like that, John Harlan kind of knew that was hooey. I mean, he just understood from his personal experiences. He knew a lot of black people in Kentucky. He certainly knew Robert Harlan very well and had watched Robert Harlan uh, grow into this huge success. Uh, he also was friends with Frederick Douglass. So he had the personal contacts to sort of give the lie to some of the terrible theories that the uh, the Northern justices come to. You talk about a moment, um, I think, when he was on the Republican ticket for governor of Kentucky when he's confronted on the campaign trail about having dined with a black man. And he, that man is Frederick Douglass. And he kind of, where maybe years before he used to violently 
denounce being, you know, associated with abolitionists. Now he is in the 1870s really kind of owning it and saying, yes, and he is a great man, in fact, and, you know, more so than the person that asked the question. So he has all these personal perspectives. And yet when he's appointed to the court uh, by President Hayes, he spends the first few years, you write, kind of very deferential to some of his more senior colleagues who are many more many years older than him, and yet something changes right in the early 1880s. Can you tell us about the, 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 the significance of the civil rights cases of 1883 and how that kind of portended or uh, foretold his trajectory on the Supreme Court when it comes to you know, his legacy in civil rights cases and other cases as well? It totally did. It was the moment when he became uh, the great dissenter, when he was willing to separate himself entirely from his colleagues, all of his colleagues, on, on really fundamental questions facing the country. It was by far the most highly publicized case of his entire tenure on the court. And there were a lot of major cases during his time on the court. Um, but this was a national requiem over civil rights. Uh, this was the moment when uh, the legal establishment and the law of the land, you know, officially abandoned the black community. Uh, at issue was the civil right, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, and there were all these cases from around the country, in both the North and the South, where individual uh, theater owners, restaurateurs, uh, innkeepers, knowingly and brazenly violated the Civil Rights Act by refusing to serve Black people. So all the cases get balled up and go before the Supreme Court. And this is a chance for the court, the Northern-led court, to finally, in their mind, sort of, you know, put the reconstruction issues behind the country. And there's a lot of language to that effect in Justice Bradley's majority opinion. And the majority, the court majority said that they're, uh, you know, they were going to put all their eggs in the basket of saying that there was no state action in any of this private discrimination, that, you know, the 14th Amendment, 13th Amendment, all of it applies to state actions only, not to the act of the baker or the shopkeeper. Harlan immediately sensed that there was something wrong in this because, you know, the framers of the 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, that it was just, you know, 20 years previously, that less than 20 years previously that these amendments had been framed, you know, and he knew that they were intended specifically to, to uh, enforce uh, civil rights acts and to create a concept of federal citizenship that superseded state action and state and state rights. So he, uh, senses in his bones that there's something wrong. He realizes that there's tremendous pressure for the court to act unanimously on this huge question before society. And yet, you know, here are all the things going on in his mind, um, you know, all of the factors we've talked about. And then one more, his eldest daughter, who was 26 years old, died typhoid fever shortly after giving uh, birth to a baby. And he was in this terrible state of grief. And he wrote a letter to his sons saying, you know, the rest of his life will be spent to you know, kind of vindicate the values of your sister. Well, one of the things the sister did was she taught uh, the children of, of freed men and women uh, at a place called Bethel Industrial School. So she was a believer in black potential and stuff. So I think all of these factors, you know, his daughter, his potential half-brother, Robert Harlan, you know, the the his interpretation of the Declaration of Independence and the uh, uh, the true intent of the Constitution, the original intent of the post-war amendments, all sort of combined into a sense that society was going down a terrible path here. 
And he writes this long, dramatic descent that combines sort of some of the high principles that we associate with his famous descent in Plessy v. Ferguson, which was, you know, 14 years later, with a very sort of nuts and bolts kind of examination of uh, of the state of the law, uh, proposing different interpretations of the 14th Amendment, 13th Amendment, dating back to, you know, some common law principles where people who are involved in the stream of commerce like um, those who operate ferries and things like that were presumed to serve all customers, that they couldn't just decide who they were going to serve, that they had a public function, and that there was a, a state action implicit in, in some of these businesses that are essential to commerce. And he also raised the idea that under the Commerce Clause itself, the federal government could enforce the Civil Rights Act, which, of course, you know, 100 years later or 80 years later became the basis for approving the Civil Rights Act. So... Um, his dissent in that, uh, you know, when you read it, you feel like it's less of a forceful statement of values that the Plessy dissent is. But it actually was sort of a greater legal document in that it showed that he he really had thought through these issues and understood uh, the constitutional interpretation in, in a way that was just uh, superior to that of his colleagues. That's a really interesting contrast you draw between that early dissent, perhaps out of a sense of, you know, newness to the Supreme Court being, you know, his first real uh, significant break with the majority and his dissent later in Plessy versus Ferguson, obviously also an eight to one decision in Plessy upholding this Louisiana law mandating segregation on rail cars. It gives rise to separate but equal that stands for over 50 years until Brown v. Board. And it, it the Plessy decision, it's its interesting to me. I didn't know this at the time, but it didn't really make much news in contrast to the civil rights cases, which were, you know, banner, headline, marquee news at the time. Um, and yet his dissent was this, I think you describe it as like a Zeus thunderbolt in the courtroom um, that seemed to foreshadow this national strife. So can you describe the Plessy dissent? What does he write and how does it become as legendary? How does it become as influential as uh, his dissent in Plessy uh, becomes. I think that the context for the Plessy decision was that the court had so strongly rebuffed uh, any concept of black rights and had shown that they weren't willing to sort of stand up for black people in any way for so many years that there was no expectation that the court would do anything but uh, allow Louisiana to maintain their separate but equal separate car act. Um, so it wasn't big news because everybody kind of knew what the result was going to be in a way. But Harlan's dissent was both a reflection of some of that, those same factors, like he had been in the minority now for 15 years and he was uh, feeling the frustration, I think, of, uh, of just how wrong he felt the court's majority was in continuing down this path. But I also think that he alone, uh, because of his his deep commitment to equal protection understood the importance of the of the uh, Plessy v. Ferguson case. You know, he in his dissent said that it will someday be viewed as being as notorious as the Dred Scott decision. And at the time, they would have laughed about that. They're like, whoa, his look these these rhetorical excesses. This is crazy. And he was right. You know, we do regard it right alongside Dred Scott as the two worst decisions in in Supreme Court history. And he was right on top of it. He was saying this is this is an abomination. This case, he wasn't he wasn't just uh, disagreeing respectfully. He was feeling that the court was sort of found you know completely wrong. I also think that one of the things that was uh, 
distinctive about this is it's not just a uh, a work of constitutional interpretation. He goes back even further to the foundational principles of the country. So when he includes the the now famous lines uh, from from this decision, you know, the Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. There is no caste here. You know, these these are phrases that harken back to what makes America the almost the unwritten constitution as well as the written constitution. And it's very rare to find any legal opinion that sort of digs that deep into, into American culture to, to condemn a, uh, a court decision. And uh, it was a powerful statement in its time. And we now know because black newspapers of that era have only been digitized recently, we now knew just how much it was discussed in the black community. So here was a case that got no attention in the mainstream press, no attention in the white community. It wasn't even a big deal in Louisiana because people kind of knew what the result was going to be. But in the black community around the country, people really studied that opinion. And it was well known that Harlan was uh, this, this lone tribune for uh, standing up for the equality of, of black citizens. And in many other important cases, including Native Americans, and then as we talked about in the insular cases, Filipinos and Cubans and Puerto Ricans, he believed in full equality for uh, all of those races. He helped to inspire uh, generations of black attorneys. So after Harlan died, there were spontaneous memorial services in black churches across the country, including in places he had never gone to. This was culminated in a, a joint memorial service at, at Metropolitan AME, which is still a big church in Washington, uh, where only Black people attended, but where Harlan's dissents were read aloud. And if you can envision, you know, the young people who were there at that service would be lawyers. And Harlan even had spoken at that church to the younger people who are interested in the law, Black people who are interested in the law. You know, it became part of the germination of the 20th century civil rights movement. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, Constance Baker Motley were enormous Harlan admirers. Constance Baker Motley talks about how Thurgood Marshall sort of used to rally the troops standing up and lecturing to his subordinates, reading aloud from Harlan's dissent. So the extent to which that dissent sort of became the uh, the inspiration and the, the source of, of high principles for the civil rights movement of the 20th century is really, you know, Harlan's great contribution. And I think people have, uh, until recently, you know, not understood just how clear the connection was between Harlan's lone, you know, lonely dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson and all that has come afterwards in terms of race and equality. And that's what's so interesting is the kind of direct legal line, um, you know, uh, with Thurgood Marshall, obviously, considering the dissent his Bible. And, and, you know, I just, that's just one case. I think what the book does a really good job of describing is how, you know, he has just been vindicated over and over again. We're talking about the context of the civil rights cases. We don't have enough time on the episode today to discuss his legacy in a variety of economic cases, whether it's the, you know, defending the federal income tax or, you know, opposing the Lochner laissez-faire era, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned the insular cases. Time and again, it seems history has proved that he at least was on what we now consider to be the sound legally based side. And yet it doesn't seem like he's often referred to in the same breath of 
the great justices of the Supreme Court like John Marshall or Louis Brandeis or Oliver Wendell Holmes, his contemporary. And I'm just wondering, why do you think that is after having completed all this uh, really rigorous research on your book? Uh, because he because he was in dissent and uh you'll you know some people say well holmes was often in dissent too and so was brandeis at various points but their dissents kind of became law in their lifetime they played a role in sort of shaping areas of the law like the first amendment in a way that sort of flatters the sensibility of lawyers and law professors today you know it's like they show how sort of rational discussion of issues kind of bring things about harlan was in in some sense a principled a dissenter, and he was totally at odds with his time. And that's not an easy lesson to teach if you're a constitutional law professor trying to teach students about how the law develops in this country. It's a very discordant kind of story. And yet, I think there is a lot of respect and growing respect for Harlan. And he does tend to get mentioned sometimes when people name him the top dozen, you know, Supreme Court justices and things like that. I think that he made a greater contribution uh, than Holmes or Brandeis. Uh, and and I think it's it's a contribution that sort of goes beyond the uh, the four walls of the legal canon. You know, at the darkest possible era for American law, when the Supreme Court was you know actively abetting the Gilded Age and economic inequality that was deeply hurtful to the country, but also allowing and empowering segregation to take hold and restraining the rights of Black people and violating these founding principles of the United States, Harlan Harlan stood up as a lone dissenter, what would it have meant to the black population of this country? What would it have meant to all Americans who really believe in those, those core founding values if, if it had been totally unanimous? You know, the story of the law would be different. It would be that everybody was gulled, everybody was wrong. As it is, it's like Harlan kept a flame going. He, you know, his presence, I think, made people like Thurgood Marshall believe that change was possible. And we now recognize that he was not just on constitutionally sound ground, but he was he was in touch with core principles in this country. He was he was he was right and he was righteous. And um, that's a powerful lesson for anybody who's studying the law or anyone who cares about the law. So I think the Harlan story is essential to understanding American law in a way that some of the very interesting and important doctrinal contributions of some other Supreme Court justices uh, are not so, uh, or at least are are less uh, Im important. So, so I do believe that John Marshall Harlan was uh, America's judicial hero, as the title of the book says. Um, but this is not entirely a uh, you know celebration of him. You know, it's a serious biography that goes into some of his. Uh, warts and all. And it and it shows, as you mentioned, kicking off this podcast, Jimmy, that uh, you know, he his greatness sort of grew out of his early contradictions and out of some times when he did not behave like a great man <laughs> earlier in his life. And um that's a powerful part of the story too. Well Peter, thank you so much um for coming on the show and talking about your book, The Great Dissenter, the story of John Marshall Harlan, America's Judicial Hero. Uh, again, a really fun read. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening this week. If you liked the episode, please write a review. It helps people find the podcast. I'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. 
And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term.